In the first five verses that I read there at the end of chapter 27, we see that Paul is describing what spiritual gifts are and who receives them and what they're for. You see, they're about serving the church. So if you have a spiritual gift, and if you're a Christian, you do, that gift has been given to you to serve the church, to grow the church, to work in God's work. Abilities are given to Christians. Some were born with, and they're sharpened. Others are given as needed. And I believe that at times you can receive a gift and an ability to do something to handle a situation that you're intended to handle at that time that may not continue on. But the fact is that God gives us gifts. What Paul is saying here is that there are spiritual gifts do not make believers spiritual. Just because you have a gift and ability doesn't make you more spiritual. The only way you'll become more spiritual is spending more time with Jesus to allow him to grow you, to learn what he's about. We must not worship the gift that we've been given, but the giver of the gift, Jesus. There are people who at times become so enamored with an ability or something that's been given to them that they end up worshiping themselves or others because of an ability given to them. But to understand that God can remove those gifts as well as he can give them. Every believer is spiritual because God's spirit is in them. Not because of anything that we've done other than to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. You see, we didn't have a whole lot to do with literally anything we have or do above nothing. If you drew a breath just now, God gave you that ability, gave you that breath. He gave you the ability to think about what I'm saying. Everything above nothing. The fact that you're here this morning, God gave you that ability. The Holy Spirit often gives more than one gift. For sure, as a Christian, you will have at least one gift. And I believe that he will give more. There's no doubt. The gifts are, are to be sought after. It tells us there in, in the uh, end of the uh, chapter that we are to seek, we are to desire more gifts. Why? Not so that we can get more attention, but that we may be able to do more for Christ. We are to desire. We are to want to be able to do more. We are to seek. I hear Joplin, uh, Pastor Joplin talk often about he, he desires to have the, the gift of healing. I think that's an admirable thing. And he seeks and asks God for it. But the chase after those gifts is an incredible thing. We are to desire them. Why do we desire them? It's important that it's to want to serve and to edify and to grow the church. It's important. God does want us to desire. He's told us here. But then Paul stops and he said, but all of these gifts, we are, there is one gift bigger and higher than all of them. And literally goes on to say that you can have the ability to do anything and everything, and without this one gift, all is worthless. Imagine that. Everything is worthless without this one. The supreme, the supreme gift is love. You realize that you can't just automatically have love. You don't just automatically have love. 
But in the first three verses of Corinthians 13, Paul begins to talk about it. He says, uh, as I read already, but I'm going to read it again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I've gained nothing. You can be the most eloquent speaker. You can speak, if you had the ability given to you, and mesmerize people and literally be able to get them to do anything you wanted. You could emotionally move them. You could see them come to the altars and get saved. Or you could create an empire for yourself, given the ability to speak, to draw people in. And yet, without Christ, without love, that would be wasted. Even Imagine if you were able to do, as you've, if you've looked back and seen how... Uh, Billy Graham would speak to stadiums and thousands of people would come to be saved. Imagine if you had that ability to speak and to draw people and yet you didn't have love and God said it was worthless. Oh, lives might have been changed, but yours wasn't. All would be lost. It's about having love. You can give away everything. Imagine being mega rich. You can look around the world and and see people that are described as extremely rich. Imagine having that and being able to give all of it away to do good, to do missions, to send missionaries out, to feed the world, to evangelize the world. And yet if you had love, if you didn't have love, it would mean nothing. Imagine having all the knowledge in the world, all the knowledge. Anybody needed to know anything, they could come to you and you could give them the answers. Imagine you could solve all mysteries, all the mysteries of the world. You understood. You could figure them out. You could solve them. You had all the faith in the world. Think about this. You had the faith to be able to move a mountain into the sea, to see it go away. It's in the way. A problem is there, and yet you don't have love, and it's all wasted. Oh, it might have helped other people, but it didn't help you at all. All is wasted without love. Imagine you could fix all the world's problems. They could do away with uh, with the no, uh, uh, oh, I forget what's the the group up there in New York, the United Nations. There you go. I had it earlier. The, imagine they could do away with the United Nations because you had all the answers. By the way, let me tell you, there's a man coming that will have all those answers, and he's an antichrist. Okay, so having all the answers, all of the things, not so important. It's more about having love. Without love, we have nothing. Imagine that you, with all of this, were willing then to step forward and allow yourself to be martyred. Give your life for what you believed. And yet without love, it would mean nothing. Literally everything in the world, Everything in this physical world you could have, but without love, it would mean nothing. That's what Paul was talking about here. But he begins to describe in verses 4 through 7 what love is 
and what love isn't. And I love these verses. Let me read them for you again. Verse 4 says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And I look at these things, and and I understand them, and I sat and I thought about me, and I just... uh, I suppose I'm not all that smart, but I only know what I know about love. And here's what I know about love. If I could take you back about 42 years ago to the town of Springfield, Missouri, to the corner of Lynn Street and Main Street, there's such a little church there, The church has a round back on it. I'll tell you in a minute why that was important to me. My parents took me to a revival service there one fall evening. I don't know the date, but it was, I'm pretty sure it was in the fall. It was cold, and I was about 10 or 11 years old. And when church got out that night, outside we went to run around the church. And I told you the back half of that church was perfectly round. And it was so cool to run around that church at 10 years old. And it was just like you were going around the corner. And I loved to run back then. I might not look at now, but I did then. I ran everywhere. And I was running around that church. And I had gone around it. And I came up to uh, the front of the church, which was the corner of Lynn and Main Street. And I had no idea what an impactful moment would happen right then. Because as I came to a stop underneath the light there on the corner, stood a little girl my age in a burnt orange coat that came below her knees, hair parted in the middle, pulled back, brown hair and dark brown eyes, and there stood Sherry. I'd never met her. I'd heard of her. I'd heard that her family moved to town. I didn't even know she was there in that um, service that night. But that was the first time I'd ever laid eyes on her. And being the eloquent young man that I was, I stopped and said hi. And then we went on. And you know what? From that point forward, I liked Sherry. She's sitting over here now. Now, you need to understand that I was 10 years old, blonde hair, I had hair, and glasses that were about as big as my face. I had just gotten them the year before, and it was so exciting to be able to see the leaves on the tree. It was amazing. I loved them. And, uh, but she was not as impressed with me as I was with her. But it really did strike a chord with me. It so struck a chord with me that... I got her address, not from her. My parents had her address, knew where she lived. And back then, you didn't, there was just a telephone. You didn't call anybody at 10 years old. So I wrote her a letter. 
But I didn't just write a letter because I kind of liked her. Didn't get to talk to her. We didn't see each other for months at a time. But I wrote her a letter. But more than that, I grew up in an auto parts store. We rebuilt engines, helped build hot rods. And so the greatest thing I could do for her was to draw her a picture of a car. Because in the evenings or the afternoons, when I was stuck at the parts store and couldn't go anywhere, I would draw pictures of the cars that I seen on the front of the magazines or the books that were there in the parts store. And so, not just any car, because you would draw her a nice-looking car, but that wasn't the kind of car that would impress the girl that I would like. The car that I liked had small little wheels on the front. It was really jacked up and massive back wheels on the back because a cool car would go fast. And I would spend hours with a sheet of paper drawing this special car. It's jacked up. By the way, if it's a cool car, one that my girl would like to ride in with me and that I would take her anywhere, those small back front tire, huge back tires, the engine sticking out of the hood, the tailpipes out the side with flames coming out of them, and smoke because the back tires are burning off all the time. Now, by the way, I did turn 16, and I drove like that. I attempted it. Didn't I? <laughs> but I would draw those pictures, and I would write her a little letter. I have no idea what I said. You kept those for a while, right? Your family got a real big kick out of those. They would laugh at it, and they thought it was funny. And about two years later... We ended up sitting in the same classroom. My parents sent me to that school. She didn't like me at all. She didn't want nothing to do with me. She had another boyfriend. And for about five long years, I liked her. But from afar, she didn't like me. But I just waited. I had no idea what time would turn out. And we became seniors in high school. We started to date. I would take her out in my Chevelle, and I wouldn't drive it as hard and as fast when she was in it as I normally did. But we dated our senior year, and I was in love. I was in love. And she was too. Nine months out of high school, we got married for 33, going on 34 years. We've been in love. We've loved each other. And while that love has grown, still, it's not the kind of love that is being talked about here. We love each other, a lifetime of love. And let me tell you something. We have found out that love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy and it doesn't boast. It is not arrogant or rude because sometimes it is. And then you've got to go back and fix it. We've tried all of those. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We've found that love bears all. It believes all things and hopes all things. And ultimately, love endures all things. But the Greek, the Greek do 
one of the best jobs of breaking up what love is and does. And eros means that a passionate or a romantic love. And certainly we've had that love. But also it, there are the four. Uh, there's then the family love or a tender caring. And certainly we've had that as our family has grown and our larger family. But then there is an agape love. An agape love. It's a love that is God-given. It's not a normal love. It is a love of mankind. It's a love that God puts in our heart. It's actually abnormal for us because we want to love when we love and we get love back or we get something in return. But agape love is not a love that there's anything that can be given in return. You see, God loves us with an agape love. And that love means essentially all we can give him back is love. There's nothing we have that God needs. I never truly loved my wife. I never truly loved my children and or my extended family and the people around me until I fell in love with Jesus. When I truly allow Jesus to take my heart and begin to infill me with his love and to spend time with him. And he began to show me a different kind of love, a love that doesn't make sense. That's the kind of love that God wants to indwell us, that he gives us, that endures all things, a love that forgives, that forgets, that loves unconditionally, and as we've grown in that love, it's amazing how much more we've enjoyed spending time together and doing things and how God has blessed us as a couple. God wants to give us an agape love. The eighth verse and the last verse I want to look at says this, love never ends. Everything else will go away. You know, there's a time that we'll pass away. We'll die. And when we get to heaven, we won't be married any longer. But the love that God has put inside of us for him, the love that God gives us will outflow forever. When we leave this world, we'll have that love in heaven. And we can have that same love to outflow us to a world that needs it. I would challenge you this. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, right now is that season that we think about giving. Find somebody that you can do something for in the next few weeks that they can't do anything back for you. They, there is nothing they can do. Show that agape love, that God-given love. Find someone. Maybe you already have it. But seek that out and do something for someone to show God's love. You'll be surprised. God may open an opportunity for you to tell someone about Jesus and to share where that comes from. I challenge you to look for that. Find it. Love never ends. There's no end to it. I knew this would be a short service. Chris, if you all would come. Let love never fails. 
Everything else in your life is going to cease. Everything. I want you to look around you, what you have, what you think you're going to have, the abilities, the goals, the things, the gifts that God has given you. They will go away. But love will never end. Ever. I want you to think about that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God wants to give you that love. He wants to indwell you. He wants to give you that love. Understanding that love never fails. If you would, stand all over the house. Everything else will fade away, but love will last. And the best example we have of that is Jesus. He died on a cross. He gave you and I salvation that we could be saved and spend eternity with Him. And there's nothing that we can give back to Him but ourselves. And He doesn't need us. We need Him.